Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. And I'm joined by Christy Angel, who's the CEO and president of the YWCA of Columbus. Christy, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Trevor. Nice to be it's, with you today. It's great to be with you. Um, let's start with a simple question. I often ask a little bit of civics 101. In this case, you're a nonprofit, so we're not talking about a public entity. But uh, a lot of people, I think, synonymously equate the YWCA and the YMCA. So tell us about, just to start, what's the difference and, and why do we have a one and, and now two? Well, we both were founded in the 1800s. I believe YMCA is a little bit older than uh, YWCA and you know our uh, the names our formal names of our organizations Young Men's Christian Association Young Women's Christian Association uh, while obviously they would um, it would appear that we are related uh, we, we call ourselves brother sister organizations just because it's fun and we're partners on a number of things but um, the, the organizations really um, were not connected in any way um, our founders, those are names that they picked uh, based on kind of the founding of, of our organizations uh, many, many years ago. In um, Columbus in particular, um, our organization was always uh, an organization that uh, the founding was about housing for women, women who were uh, moving to the Columbus area from a more rural part of, of Ohio to find work women who were uh, supporting families um, by working in factories and such, you know, especially uh, during wartime, um, or women who were looking to pursue, you know, some type of, of education or who had been widowed. Uh, we were founded in 1886, and through the years, our mission has always been about the empowerment of women um, and supporting women, but in the 1970s, uh, Dr. Dorothy Height, uh, who was, um, you know, a social justice, civil rights activist, uh, founded um, many organizations, including one um, for, uh, at the time, it was, you know, the Council of Negro Women, um, and who marched with Dr. King and C.T. Vivian and Ralph Abernathy and many others and, and worked in some of those social justice organizations. She uh, began to have the conversation about race and, you know, the, as she called it, one imperative that you cannot empower women without also looking at, um, you know, what we now call intersectionality, but then, you know, the elimination of racism and believe that our work was in, in both of, of those kind of parts of, of the work, so to speak. And, and so we adopted the one imperative, empowerment of women and elimination of racism, our organization did in the 70s. And, you know, we always had the promoting peace, justice, freedom, dignity for all. And so there are, you know, uniquenesses to the two organizations, but our organization uh, intentionally um, has been, you know, involved in social justice work around empowerment of women and race, ending racism. Great, thanks. I, I always benefit from those history lessons. So I, I didn't realize that they were distinctly separate and the names weren't so connected or analogous. So that's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So now fast forward, it's 2020. Um, you know, you mentioned housing uh, and women and then added race in there as, a, as an addition. 
what here in central Ohio are the foci for, for you and the organization? What are you trying to achieve, you know, beginning of 2020? Beginning of 2020. So, you know, again, I go back to, we have the unique, somewhat unique, uh, you know, goal where we are, we have a social justice, uh, you know, set of priorities, if you will. And we also are a service organization. And so in January of 2020, we were setting about approving a new advocacy agenda that included um, housing justice and pay equity. And uh, we were also about, um, you know, continuing uh, to advocate for, um, you know, families that are homeless, increased funding for homelessness, um, in particular homeless families. Uh, we had some success uh, coming out of the 2019 budget cycle uh, from our local government participants, our partners, and um, we were also starting to think about, you know, the expansion of our social enterprise. Um, our social enterprise is uh, after school care uh, in the Westerville and Gahanna communities. And we were starting to look at um, some possible expansion. Uh, really in January, 2020, that's, that's what we thought our work would look like this year. So let, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the funds you have to raise in the social enterprise. I, I wanna, our audience is a nerdy. They wanna know how things work. So um, you've talked about the goals of the enterprise. Now, how do you fund that enterprise? How, how, what's the revenue sources for the YWCA? And, um, and indulge us a little bit and tell us what is a social enterprise and how does that work for, for you all? So we, um, I, I always say our budget is about, it's about a third, a third, a third, but let's just, that's for easy math. Um, math not being my favorite subject. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a third of our revenue just about comes from grants uh, and, and federal uh, or government funds. So, you know, if you think about um, funds from the city, the county, HUD, uh, the, those largely help to support our housing work um, and, you know, grants that we apply for, uh, be it TANF monies from the state of Ohio or other, you know, grant opportunities that help us fund, in particular, the housing work. We run permanent supportive housing, that's housing for people with disabilities uh, and wraparound supports. Um, and we have shelter for, for families who find themselves homeless. And so those two parts of the enterprise do receive uh, significant government support. The next third of our revenue, I would say, you know, is uh, fundraising. We raise um, a large portion of funds every year uh, we have, um, you know, a healthy fundraising budget. Uh, we don't always make, meet goal, but most of the time we get right up to the goal or we exceed the goal. That is where we have some corporate contributions and corporate grants and then fundraising from events and individuals. You know, so we have a fundraising plan. Uh, every year we're looking at that plan. We, we put it into four quarters and, uh, you know, we are trying to raise almost, you know, of the two and a half million dollars we need to raise every year, we kind of say, okay, divided by, you know, four quarters, how much do we need to bring in every, every quarter from all of those different sources? And then the last part of the revenue is the social enterprise. So for a nonprofit like ours, we have a business and our business is the business of after-school care. Mm -hmm. And in Westerville and Gahanna, we uh, run those programs inside of uh, each elementary school and families who need aftercare, and in Westerville, 
there are families who actually need um, before school care as well because school gets started a little later and you know people have to go to work so they need a, a place for their uh, safe place for their their kiddo to to go you know while they're waiting for school to start and we offer enrichment healthy play snacks um you know breakfast in the morning if if you know a, a light breakfast if if we're in westerville uh, we have uh, some social emotional learning and, and the like and so those programs have been operating for almost just about 30 years in both of those communities and those are private pay programs for the most part uh you know families commit to you know paying uh, a weekly uh, payment to ywca columbus for that care the revenue that comes you know from that which is about $3 million a year, mm -hmm. that revenue uh, helps support the agency. So obviously it costs a lot of money to run that program. You know, you have probably, oh, I'd say about 80 employees, about 20 or so part-time and then another 60 or so, uh, or 20 full-time and about 60 part-time. And so, you know, the, the funding of the, the people to, to make the enterprise go, but then the second part of it, you know, is revenue that then comes into the organization that helps support the other work that we're doing. And so, you know, for going back to housing, you know, housing being supported by government uh, funds and, and some, you know, grants in particular, that, that funding, for many years was flat. And up until the end of last year, we hadn't received really an increase in the, the funding, but the cost of doing that, running that business continues to increase because you know housing is costly, especially in our community right now. And the, the number of homeless families has, con has continued to increase along with the cost of food and you know all the other things right heat electricity etc you're providing all of that you know in in the system and so um the enterprise helps offset the, those costs as well and the enterprise or the social enterprise was also helping to fund some of our social justice work along with you know some donors but uh largely our social justice work was was being supported by the the business side of of ywca columbus so this is a fascinating innovation really in the way nonprofits are run is the advent of social enterprise. And so that leaves you with a very balanced portfolio. You're a third, a third, a third, and that, that gives mm -hmm. you some hedge on risk that one goes down, another goes up. When, when did you all add the social enterprise component to your mix of programs and then revenue sources? Uh, well, it was just about, I would say probably about 35 years ago. Um, we, you know, started in the child care business and um, began, you know, some combination of private pay and, you know, government supported child care. And through those years, it has, you know, it has, I would say, ebbed and flowed. Sometimes we've had uh, just birth to pre-K. Uh, other times we've had, um, you know, the programs, the before or after school care programs. We've had programs in Columbus City Schools, New Albany, Gahanna, and Westerville. The Gahanna and Westerville programs have been, um, you know, the those that have been sustained through the years. Uh, New Albany, um, oh, probably 10 years ago or more, decided to bring their after school care program in in-house. And in Columbus City Schools, I'd say probably 12 years ago or so, 
those programs, um, you know, weren't working as well as, as we all would have liked. And so we, we ended that partnership, although we continue to always look for, you know, opportunities to provide that service. Um, you know, the Western World Gehanna models are, are well-oiled machines. And as we like to say, we know how to do that very, very well. And in the summer, I would add, we also have summer camp in those communities. Mm -hmm. So we also offer summer camp, which is all day, you know, an all day program um, with, you know, fun activities as you might have in camp, but also some educational enrichment as well. Great. So a great model of, as you say, social enterprise where you're pursuing social ends, but generating resources that allow you to deliver other kinds of services to, to your clients. Okay, great. That's fantastic background. I'm much better informed on the YWCA. So let, let's talk about two events or series of events that really rocked our community here in, in central Ohio and across the country. So the first was COVID and then the second was George Floyd's death and the awakening um, broadly. I mean, many were well aware of the challenges that people of color face in dealing with um, public institutions like the police, but that really raised the consciousness of, of America about some of these issues. Talk about how, and, and you, you pick, um, which of those uh, really impacted the YWCA and its programs? I want to dive into sort of where you went after the start of the year to, to now uh, many, many months into it. How did those two events impact uh, how you deliver services? Sure. Well, let me start with COVID-19. Um, for us, uh, we started having the conversation uh, as an organization in our board just about um, right around March 5th or so, I believe um, it was just it was the, the first Wednesday in March, it followed the city of Columbus's decision to suspend the Arnold or change the Arnold Classic. Now, you think, well, what did that have to do with YWCA Columbus? Well, two things. One, um, we are um, incredibly uh, grateful and um, incredibly blessed to have Dr. Mishika Roberts, uh, the Co City of Columbus Public Health Commissioner on our board. And so um, we were able to have a board discussion about the decision that the city uh, and the state made to change, to change the Arnold and what that might mean for our community overall and how that was going to impact YWCA Columbus. So immediately we started, um, you know, we, we looked at our housing protocols and changed, uh, you know, cleaning procedures and, and, you know, some basic things just around um, health and safety in, in the buildings where people live. Uh, seven days later, just about, uh, the governor announced that he was closing school for a period of time, that schools were going to you know, be shutting down. And um, when those schools shut down, as you might imagine, we just spoke about the social enterprise, that program also closed. And so the revenue uh, generated from that program it was essentially frozen. Uh, you know, at that time we were trying to decide and we were talking to parents about, you know, should we be, you know, refunding money? What does this mean? And of course at that, on March 12th, we were all saying, let's wait and see. We thought this was maybe two weeks or maybe a month, you know, we did not know how long. But what that means for families in shelter is that now their children because children go to school, you know, their, their families, you know, maybe are, they're homeless, but they go to school in their homeschool. So that also meant that children were in the shelter all day long. 
um, families, you know, were scrambling trying to figure out what they were going to do with their kiddos, you know, if, because people were still working at that time. And then of course, systematically, you know, we saw things shut down, right? We saw, you know, we went to a stay at home order. What does that mean, et cetera. So for us on the homeless system side, all costs increased. So cleanings, food, heating, everything you can imagine, because where we would not have people in the building 24 hours a day, we now have everyone, you know, families, et cetera, 24 hours a day. We also have a team of people we needed uh, to add to our staff uh, so that we could assist in caring for kiddos and doing some other things just to, you know, and you just had more people in the building. So we deployed some of our after school care education team over to our family center, those who were able to work, um, you know, and we had them, you know, providing, you know, some, some bit source of fun and educational enrichment to assist families uh, as they were some still trying to go to work and still trying to look for housing. When that became, uh, when it became apparent to us that families couldn't even do those things, uh, then we, you know, really just set up, you know, kind of an operation that allowed people to, to stay back in their living quarters. Um, usually we have people come out and we clean and so forth. We changed our cleaning schedules, et cetera. And then the purchase of PPE began. Yeah. And so masks and gloves and sanitizer and all of the things that uh, we needed to buy, we quickly started buying all of that. And so our increased, you know, cost of operating just, you know, went up exponentially. Of course, then we lost the social enterprise. And so that revenue, we started forecasting, you know, for at least uh, the second quarter of the year, we were not going to have that revenue available to us. And, um, you know, we started a we, we changed our fundraising strategy and our plan and we began to talk to the community about, you know, we're still providing service in the time of a pandemic. And we saw um, just, you know, a huge increase uh, and outpouring of love and support to, um, to especially the family center uh, for meals, food, um, needed items, cleaning supplies, money, uh, we were able to, to apply for emergency loans, PPP, and all of those things. And so as that became kind of our new norm and somewhat stable, um, I will say, you know, great team, the team that, you know, no COVID infections at this time in the, among families uh, at the family center, um, and, and just really, you know, using all of the, the right protocols and keeping everyone as, you know, safe and, and healthy and socially distant as we can and, and how all the, they figured out how to do all of that. Um, then George Floyd is murdered. And the social justice movement, um, you know, kind of, I, I always say began, but I will say re was renewed. Yeah. In a, in, a, in a different way. And then the social justice side of our organization kicks in. And, and I found myself as a leader in the organization, you know, at many tables talking about uh, police reform, talking about, you know, what is needed in our community, even asking for calm <clears throat> during those days where we saw um, not the protesters, but others come in and kind of take advantage of a situation. At least, you know, that was, that was a viewpoint that many of us had. Um, but also just talking to leaders about, you know, where we need to go from here. What we then saw as a trusted organization in this community that does understand how to talk about race, um, we saw 
uh, an influx of resources, organizations who wanted to make an investment in social justice work, including our work around the elimination of racism. Well, Trevor, we had a plan that we were starting to work on uh, that was going to uh, kind of expand that team and we hadn't quite found the, all of the pieces and parts to fund it, but we were starting you know, to take a look at that and it was about a two year plan, I'd say. Um, that two year plan became about a two month plan um, because we quickly, we found ourselves with the resources to and the investment to support that work. So we received significant investment in the work. Uh, we are standing up a racial equity uh, training program. Uh, we are in the position now where we can hire a new policy analyst to help us with our advocacy work and research and writings. Um, we also found ourselves, we were, we were talking about racism as a public health crisis uh, with other YWCAs in the state last September. Uh, and we had started talking to the city and the county about racism as a public health crisis. Uh, we, they both passed uh, declarations or resolutions uh, to declare that. Uh, we stood with them, we testified, we're now uh, part of implementation teams to, to help um, kind of implement the changes that are needed that really look at some of the social determinants of health. And so, you know, out of tragedy and out of, um, you know, just, you know, something that continues to happen and we all continue to talk about, you know, what, what can we do to, to make, you know, bring about change in particular, you know, in that system. But obviously, you know, our goal is let's start talking about building an anti-racist community and, and individuals in the like, uh, we were able to receive investment and to, to really jumpstart a, a part of our, of our organization and, and work that we had hoped, uh, you know, in two years to expand. And now we're expanding. So you had a phrase I want to come back to earlier where you said that um, you're, you're, the YWCA is a trusted organization that knows how to talk about race. Do me a favor and elaborate on that a little bit. What, what did you mean by that? And, and what, what, would, what are some ways that, that your organization is particularly well positioned to, to help the community have a conversation around race? Mm -hmm. Well, I go back to the trusted organization because we've been here you know, for so long uh, and we've been talking about race in various ways since the 70s. Um, you know, and, and that has evolved and our work has evolved. Um, but when we say talk about race, one, it is giving, you know, individuals and organizations the space to, to learn uh, about our history, to understand kind of the, this construct called race, uh, to talk about, you know, what it means, um, you know, anti, now we use the words anti-racist, we use the words allyship, how to build allies. Um, and, and really to take someone along, along on a journey. Um, and certainly, you know, for us, it's everything from land acknowledgements, you know, regarding in our community, you know, the, the, the indigenous peoples who were here long before us goes all the way, you know, through, you know, what we see happening around immigration uh, in this community um, and, and beyond, obviously, you know, to talk about the history of slavery and, and construct of race is a part of it. So it's a historic, we, we, we understand the, the history that we kind of 
sit in, sit in and stand in, so to speak. And then now let's talk about kind of, you know, where we are today and where we want to go and things that are still impediments and still uh, create barriers for people in particular, women and people of color, those who find themselves marginalized. And so we've learned various ways and techniques to do that. And, um, you know, many people would come to us and say, I remember you used to do the, you know, racism dialogues or the study circles. And so well, we don't do that anymore. Now we do, you know, our work is done in a different way. Uh, we have, you know, libraries of books that we, we use to teach uh, and to do some of the work. We have videos, we have podcasts. I mean, there's so many tools available to us. And so that trust, uh, that people have in us because I think just some longevity, but also because it is embedded in our mission and we have you know, access to resources to help us uh, maybe tailor you know, some conversations um, has been, you know, has created opportunities for us. Uh, we didn't just get into this work. So I, I know this is going down a, a, a perhaps a tributary here rather than the main river, but I, I'm fascinated. So, so much of what we're being encouraged as citizens of the United States um, and perhaps other parts of the world too, is to engage in individual conversations around race and injustice, just like you and I are doing right now. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of, of how do we get a community to have this important conversation and how do we know when that conversation is really meaningful and impactful? I think we all are starting to wrestle with, well, how would I know? Um, I've read something or I've had a conversation with somebody and I feel changed in some way. How, how from your perspective, running this, this organization that's been here for over a century and played such a central part in the community, how will you know when we as a community are in a different place around race. Um, how will these conversations that you all are so adept at, at, at facilitating lead to the community having a different perspective and a different understanding of, of race and injustice and inequity? Well, I don't have all of the answers for that. I think we're still trying to, we're wrestling with that ourselves and what our measurement and evaluation tools are and will be and are going to be. But I will say, you know, some of the things that, that my team and I, that we, that our team, what we, what we start talking about is change behavior, um, change in policy, mm -hmm. um, and, and not change in policy that, you know, yes, there's always a, you know, there's a push from, you know, the external, uh, you know, or advocates like us, but when there is, um, a coalition of the willing inside of, of leadership, you know, in, in government in particular, where policies are changed, um, a willingness to have, uh, to build equity, equity uh, into uh, decision-making. So whether it's land use policy or affordable housing policy, uh, the racism as a public health crisis, I mean, equity, right? Really starting to look at what equity uh, means in, in a community. And when we, the other measurement that we keep, we always go back to, and we haven't quite, you know, figured out what our scorecard is going to look like, so to speak, although there are many of us talking about this in the community, is when it's not just, there's not just one person of color or one LGBTQ person, right? One representative from every, but when, 
when when it is it is a very diverse table and and you know there there one one is a token and you know <laughs> you know two or more is 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 when we really start to you know have influence i guess you know and and when we see that not just in nonprofit work or government work but when we also see it in the for profit sector when we see more more leaders um, you know and and decision making roles that impact you know an organization or an enterprise that are of color, different gender, you know, um, LGBTQ, you know, and so on. And so, I mean, as I, as I said, we're still wrestling with the actual evaluation tools that we will begin to use. And there are uh, many of us talking about this. We're talking about this with the Columbus Urban League um, along, uh, you know, they, they look at a lot of economic indicators as well. And I think that there is going to be there. There will also be that there will be some economic indicators that we will have to measure as well, so that we see, you know, um, some improvement in our community along the lines of wealth building and uh, wealth generation, you know, home ownership, um, you know, those, those kinds of things as well. But if we don't want to measure just those things, right? right. We want to as we close up here, let's look to the future. Um, we're two, three years out from now. What, what do you see as a changed Columbus and a changed YWCA? Or, or do you think in a couple of years, it'll be just like it was in January 2020? I certainly hope not. Um, I, I think, you know, if, if we were, let's say, three years out, Three years out for us, you know, for our organization in particular would mean that, you know, our racial equity program will have provided guidance and or, um, you know, foundational training, uh, maybe even, you know, more than that, um, you know, to many, many organizations. And I tend not to be a person who says it has to be, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, but I do, you know, think that we want to, we are going to start to to look at, you know, how many, who, who in the sectors do we start to have, where do we start to have an impact, you know, in whether it's education sector, nonprofit, uh, for-profit, small business, large business and the like. And so we'll be building that out this year and, and you know, we would want to have a, a profound um, impact and have really started this conversation uh, to, to create change. And we're going to launch something just so that you know in, I believe it will be February, February or March of next year. And it's a 21 day racial equity challenge. Mm -hmm. We're gonna launch that with 14 other YWCAs in Ohio, perhaps many other YWCAs across the country. We're working, my colleague in Cleveland is working on a launch plan beyond just Ohio, but it takes 21 days to change a habit. And so our goal is that in three years, we will, that, that, that will become part of, of our work, that'll be part of our muscle, so to speak, and that we will start this, this racial equity journey in, in many, many places and spaces, you know, not only in this community, but across the state through YWCA organizations. It will be carefully curated content, video, reading, you can go, you know, kind of top lines or go as deep as you want um, in the work. And uh, it's already been tested. And so we're really excited about that. So I hope uh, you know, that that program will become one that becomes a game changer inside of many organizations and homes. 
And then I would also say for our community, in three years, what I would like to see is new land use policy that, that does away with the 1950s Euclidean, Euclidean zoning that um, was really, is really tired and it's time to move beyond that because I think when we have zoning policy, land use policy in particular that is built and has some foundation of equity in, built into it, that we can begin to see neighborhoods change and transform um, and neighborhoods that have you know, been disinvested in uh, for years receive investment, but also we see people begin to live where they want to live because I think when we live near one another, there are also relationships and you know, commonalities and you know, that, that occur. And, and that's gonna take a lot. It's not just gonna be the city of Columbus. It's gonna, we're gonna need our suburban communities to come alongside us. And I think this is a wave that is, that is happening. And I hope in three years, we have that new land use policy. I would also say that I hope in three years that we no longer need a robust homeless system, in particular homeless family system, because we have been working for many, many years to improve that system. And what is definitely needed, um, you know, we've got connection to work, connection to resources, connection, I mean, all of these things, but the pieces that we do not have is housing that people can afford. And along with housing that people can afford is a wage that people can, can live off of. And we've got to wrestle with that as a community because the money that we're spending to re we spend about, it's a fun fact, but or not so fun fact, to keep someone housed is about $2,200 roughly. That's the cost. If someone called today and said, I need assistance to stay in my home, I need some rent assistance, or a car repair that allow me to, will allow me to pay my rent. On average, it's about $2,250. When someone becomes homeless, the cost to rehouse someone who is homeless, in particular a family, is about $7,700. And so the cost to our community to rehouse people, if we can just figure out how to get people housed, is, it, it is housing is a great stabilizer. From all things, you know, people can can grow from that. And you look around, Trevor, and there are lots of vacant housing. There are lots of vacant apartments, you know. But beyond that, I mean, you know, there's opportunity to build. We've got to build where transit uh, or transportation is, so people can get to work. All of those things we need to, as a community, decide if we're going to be that community where we want people to be housing secure. And, and I hope that this organization in three years has had a profound impact on that work. Housing justice is one of the most important things that we'll, we will do in the next three years, along with our racial equity work. Well, it's, it's laudable work, and we are so appreciative as citizens here of Central Ohio. So, Christy, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day and all that good work you're doing to chat with me. And uh, we, we really want to be there to support you. So um, for all of those out there who want to help, uh, go to the website of the Columbus YWCA, and there are lots of ways that you can engage and and uh, and help Christy and her her counterparts in doing good work. So thanks, Christy, much appreciated. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's been great to be with you, and hello to all of those uh, students and alums out there. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at the Ohio State University. 